0: We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every american to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information no one is able to come to sensible conclusions for too long a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost the racist sexist homophobic xenophobic God bless America. I hope you can hear me well. I forgot to plug in my little handy dandy microphone, but I wanted to touch base. Hang on, my stuff is a little bit crooked. I wanted to touch base number one on my thoughts on the election and number two, uh, tackle a few ideas to continue our discussion on the Second Amendment. Uh, So the election, right, it's a little bit interesting. Some states Definitely what we thought they would be, like New Mexico. I don't know why New Mexicans keep picking people to keep us last in the nation on everything, uh, but we have our work cut out for us here. But we also have some interesting things that happened in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. Uh, we've got some interesting things going on in Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, uh, and Pennsylvania, which... Like I posted on Twitter, you can follow me at We the Deplorables or We Are Deplorables, something like that. Um, I said they're like the uh, rebellious, basically rebellious little children, and they keep causing us problems. They caused us problems in the 2020 election. They're now causing us problems in this election. We have 60 seats that are open. That is unacceptable in today's world. That is unacceptable that we are still waiting for results and we have 60 seats open. Now, I want to go specifically to Fetterman, the Fetterman Osdale, and I'm just going to share my thoughts with you. So, Fetterman, okay, first of all, elections are a popularity contests. They should not be, they should be a policy contests. But for some reason, and probably from the very beginning, they're popularity contests. And you have to get into the psyche of the voter. So if you go up to, uh, Pennsylvania, it's a rough and tumble, um, hardworking, you know, still, uh, you know, I mean, Pittsburgh Steelers, I mean, the steel mills, just all of those things. Um, they're very independent. Um, they're, they're just a different type of people. Uh, they're hardworking. They're, um, no nonsense. And so you would think, well, if they're like that, why wouldn't they vote for a Republican? Well, they're going to vote for one of their own kind. And they're also, a lot of them were union or are union. And union typically is Democrat. So that's part of it is they're, you know, definitely hard workers, definitely, um, that, you know, that American spirit type of person but they also had unions. On top of that, Oz was not the best pick. And the reason why is because he is the typical, you know, successful, out-of-touch type of person that Pennsylvanians just have a rough time connecting to. Like They they are, um, Pennsylvanians, like if you just study a little bit, they're very loyal to their state. Like they have a state patriotism. And even though Oz grew up there and he lived there for most of his life, he moved to New Jersey. He's famous. He's a TV personality. And he called a veggie tray a charcuterie, I guess is what it is. Now, you know, there might be some people out there that would be like, oh yeah, that's a veggie tray. But in Philadelphia, especially, but Pennsylvania, it's it's a veggie tray. It's a veggie and cheese tray. So he did not connect emotionally with the people. So what happened, other than maybe possibly corruption in the voting system, is they went with a guy that was most like them, even though he should not have been allowed to run because of his health problems. I mean, I don't know if y'all saw that huge thing on his neck. He had a stroke that is related to heart issues, which typically the survival rate is only like five to six years. He cannot form sentences because of the stroke. Uh, he has a really rough time and he has to have um, uh, closed captioning, which you know, people go, well, you're an ableist. No, I'm actually a realist. So if he is on the scent floor and the debate is hot and heavy and things are going on. Is he going to be able to keep up and process information. So that's what happened there in Pennsylvania. Oz was just not a good candidate. They needed to find somebody else that was, I mean, pure Pennsylvanian, that rough, that tough, roll up your sleeves, wear the jeans and hoodies against the grain. Let's do this. So that's, that's what they needed. They didn't pick that. Now, Um, there's, well, and they're probably going to pay the price. So there's some other areas which you would think there's no way in H-E-Double Hockey Sticks that they would pick these people. Um, the Warnock and the Walker race is, uh, close, a little too close for comfort. I don't know if Walker will pull it out. I actually like him. I think that he's not as dumb as people make him out to be. I mean, his speech may be slow, uh, he definitely has that Georgian accent, which I think is beautiful. Um, but he does sound backwoods. But he has ran a good campaign in spite of the corruption that's in Georgia, as well as the media has just attacked him relentlessly. Um, is he a good candidate or not? I think we probably could have done a little bit better. Um, we'll see if he's able to pull this out in the runoff. But again, he needs to learn to be a storyteller. A storyteller, uh, like anytime you tell stories, the listener's brain actually literally gets on the same, same wavelength as you. And so if he is, yeah, well, the one that's on the story. So if he would have even gotten other people up there to share their stories, that would have been a lot better, and it would have gone a long way um, versus him just talking merely the, um, the crime and inflation, blah, 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 So that takes us to New York. Zeldin was very close, but people still chose uh, a, a governor that thinks that crime is not that big of a deal, um, doesn't recognize it as an issue, nor inflation, etc. She was one of the strictest when it came to uh, lockdowns. Why, why did they do that? Well, um, there's been a lot of victories actually for the Republicans in some of the New York districts, but for the governor, and I would also include the other left-leaning states where people that were Democrat eked out uh, a win, um, here's the deal. The Gen Zers are voting on causes, on issues. So when you look at the exit polling, you see that Gen Zers are dominant Democrat. They've been recruited very well to register and vote. And their top concerns are climate change and abortion. So here's what you have to understand about the young people, whether it was the millennials back in the day or it's the Gen Zers today. They are cause-driven. So for them, you would think that crime and inflation would matter. It doesn't because they firmly believe in the climate change uh, doctrine. And so for them, it's like, well, who cares if gas prices are what they are or who cares, uh, you know, if crime is what it is? We need reform. We need radical change. We need to end fossil fuels anyway. So let's bite the bullet. Let's go through the pain and let's save our planet. So for the Gen Zers, it's life or death. They're also very liberal. They vote on LGBTQ rights. They vote on um, pro-abortion. I will never call it pro-choice, because that's a, a misnomer. And they they vote on those issues. And so when you look at that, 70% of the Gen Zers that voted voted for Democrat based on those causes. So the Republican Party needs to wise up and create causes that the young people can form themselves around and reframe some of these things that they're believing in. And so the experience is required that leaves them with that emotional connection to something that means more than themselves. So that's why in a lot of those races uh, where we thought that they might um, pull out, the Republicans might pull out a win, that's why they didn't, because of the Gen Zers, and you have to go beyond what the Republic, Republican Party is doing. They're running as if they're in 1980, and it's very frustrating. And that's why people like Kerry Lake and Trump and DeSantis are um, making waves. I do believe Kerry Lake is going to pull it out. Um, Arizona is crooked. And there needs to be strong election reform. That's what happened in uh, Florida. That's why DeSantis won on such a double-digit lead is because they did extensive um, uh, election reform after the Miami-Dade debacle when he was actually elected as governor the first time. He went in there, cleaned up the system, cleaned up the rolls, cleaned up everything that needed to be cleaned up, put very firm laws in place And now we have where they are able to call the race immediately and the the Latino vote was 70% for DeSantis, which tells me there was either a lot of corruption in previous, especially Miami-Dade. So Miami-Dade, I believe the number was 70% voted for DeSantis. So um, if you are a Latino, you need to start grassroots movement and education here in New Mexico on the values that are important to Latinos, family, uh, good employment, uh, things like that. Um, actually, a lot of Latinos are upset about the border. We have 5 million people in here, guys. That's a huge number. And so a lot of people are upset about that because they know it takes their jobs um, or they resent that they went through the process legally. Okay, so let's see. We've uh, covered the Democrats, the Gen Zers, um, oh, the red wave. Okay, Republicans need to quit saying that. There was neither a win for the Democrats or the Republicans, actually. This nation is split 50 50 almost. I would say there's actually probably a little bit more conservatives than there is, but the independents, that is the key. The independents are a unique breed of voter and they will go either or, and Republicans need to study how they think, because if they study how they think, we can start recruiting more and more independents into our elections to vote for us. The other thing, and I just want to reiterate this, if you are a Christian, you need to vote. I can prove it all day long in the scripture. In fact, I have an entire podcast episode on We the Deplorables." That goes into the scriptural basis for voting. If you take the model that God puts uh, kings and queens in place and he takes down rulers, um, that is a king and aristocracy based uh, theology. We are in a democratic republic, which means the power to remove and the power to put in place belongs to we, the people. God gave us that model so that we don't have tyrants. And so when you've got 30% of Christians that vote, if every Christian voted, we would never lose another election to people who believe in abortion. And so it's very frustrating that we are the strongest force in this country and we're not doing our job. So please go to We The Deplorables, listen to the Black Robe Regiment, listen to the political series, Please get some word on this, and then educate others. It's going to take a grassroots root movements within Christian circles—Baptists, Catholics, Church of Christ. It doesn't matter. We've got to educate people on what voting is about, what righteous voting looks like, and our responsibility in this realm. So those are my thoughts on it. Um, the fact that. are Democrat, 50% are Republican tells me that this country is in trouble. It tells me that the ideologies and the doctrine the religion of wokeism, uh, all of those things have made headway. Uh, our young people have bought into it and we need to get it back to the families where we teach values. We teach morality. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter. Teach morality teach forgiveness, teach integrity, uh, teach uh, um, an American patriotism, teach uh, core values, honor, all of those things, a a value for life. Please teach it to your children. We should not give it to school systems. Whether it's college, whether it's elementary, those things should be taught around the kitchen table. And uh, so those are my thoughts. Um, I would love to hear what you have to say. Um, So, you know, comment, whatever you want to do. But I want to do just a little bit of briefness uh, tonight on the Second Amendment. And uh, so we talked about the last time, I think it was uh, either last week or the week before, um, on how James Wilson, one of our founding fathers, talked about how homicide is required when it's necessary for the defense of one's own purpose or house. And it's from his quote where we get the um, Castle Doctrine. Which means that if you are protecting your house from robbery or you're protecting yourself at your home from physical harm, you have a right to shoot the person. And actually, in concealed carry classes, at least here, it's important to understand that you need to shoot to kill. You actually open yourself up to lawsuit if you don't and you leave someone maimed, which is just hard to believe, but that's what it is. Um, so I want to continue on with another legal commentary. So we talked about the Blackstone Commentaries, which was written by a British man, of which a lot of our founding fathers based a lot of the decisions and the debates they had on those commentaries. Well, another one is by St. George Tucker. Now, Tucker was an attorney, a military officer, wounded twice during the American Revolution, he was one of the leaders of the 1786 Annapolis Convention that basically led to the convening of the Constitutional Convention of 1787. So a lot of people don't under or know that our Constitution was actually adopted in 1789. Until then, we had the I believe Lee Resolution, which turned our colonies into states, July 2nd, 1776, and then on July 4th, uh, our founding fathers. Uh, put in place the Declaration of Independence. Once we won the war and it was time to form the government on a deeper level, that's when they started talking about the Constitution. And so he was very much involved in it. And he was talking, well, he actually annotated the Blackstone commentaries. But he also um, talked about the Second Amendment. And he said the right of self-defense is a first law of nature. In most governments... It has been the study of rulers to confine this right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever the right of the people to keep and bear arms is under any color or pretext pretext whatsoever, prohibited liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. So what is he saying? He's saying that if there is any attempt to disarm the people that liberty is on the brink of destruction. Um, The situation in America is there's too many people that carry weapons, so they would have to weaponize the military against us, which would end up in an all-out war. I believe the smarter choice and what Democrats have been doing is regulating the right to bear arms out. So red flag laws... Um, that's a, you know, that's a regulation. It's actually a violation of the second amendment because there's no due process. Uh, well, not the second amendment, but the bill of rights due process is part of our, um, procedure on anything criminal. And I understand the noble idea behind keeping weapons out of people that are mentally unstable, but they're going to find a way to do it anyway. But the red flag laws are against the due process, uh, taxing, Any um, firearms or ammunition is a way that they're gonna go about trying to disarm us. Making gun ownership so expensive and so regulated that it will actually diminish the people's will to go through the process or to pay the expense. They did it in Australia before they came and collected uh, the weapons. So any reaction to error produces more error and we cannot allow gun violence to be the leading um, focus of any gun laws or reform. The only focus of any of that is the Second Amendment. So he's saying that if people in government start diminishing our ability to bear arms, liberty is on the brink of destruction. I can pretty much guarantee you that's what they're doing. Now, George Washington, Um, he, uh, let's see. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, U.S. Attorney Rawl. he founded an early legal society that became a law academy. And then in 1825, he published his view of the constitution, which was one of the first extensive commentaries on it. Um, he said in the second amendment, it is declared that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The prohibition is general. No clause in the Constitution could, by any rule of construction, be conceived to give Congress a power to disarm the people. A flagrantly wicked attempt could only be made under some general pretense by a state legislator. So they're going to work through the states as well. But if in any blind pursuit of inordinate power, either the state or federal government should attempt it, This amendment may be appealed to as a restraint. What is he saying? He's saying if any state or federal government tries to limit our rights to bear arms, then those arms should be a deterrent to that government. Okay? It's strong language. You know, it's amazing how these guys thought. They were very, very particular about it because they lived under kings in Britain that were tyrants. Which, by the way, I'm going to start um, the Constitution 101 course uh, next year. And we're going to go through a lot of this stuff. But we're going to go through the five documents from which our founding fathers formed our documents, especially the Constitution. And you'll get a very clear idea of where they got a lot of the stuff that they got. So I'm very excited. I'm de- developing the slides, et cetera. Now, a year after Rawls' Raul, uh, work, a Chancellor James Kent, who was a historian and also a scholar and one of the two uh, fathers of American jurisprudence, he um, embarked on the practice of uh, law after reading Blackstone's commentaries. And um, he became a close friend of many of the delegates that, you know, were in the Constitutional Convention. He became a law professor and a justice on the New York Supreme Court, where he instituted the practice of handing down written uh, opinions like our Supreme Court does today. In 1826, he issued his commentaries on American law, which is considered today as a foremost American institutional legal uh, uh, treatise. Um, one of the Supreme Court justices from 1907 to 1998, John Justice Lewis Powell, said one who desires a brief review of the foundation stones of our constitutional jurisprudence could go nowhere else with such profit. So that's a high opinion from Mr. Kent. He says a mu- uh, municipal law of our country has likewise left with individuals the exercise of the natural right, so that's from God, of self-defense, the right of self-defense is founded in the law of nature and is not and cannot be superseded by the law of society. Okay, so these, these are the people that wrote our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, etc. Now, Joseph's story, uh, he became a chief justice, but um, he's also one of the, the, the founder of Harvard Law School. He'd probably be rolling over in his grave if he knew how stupid they were now. Um, but he was the son of one of the Indians at the Boston Tea Party. He was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court by President James Madison, and he was one of the youngest to serve uh, or be appointed on the Supreme Court. Now, he also wrote some commentaries, and he is the other uh, father of American jurisprudence. And in 1833, in his commentaries on the United States Constitution, he said, The next amendment is, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to bear and keep arms shall not be infringed. The importance of this article will scarcely be doubted by any persons who have duly reflected upon the subject. The right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic since it offers, now listen to this, A strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers. Did you get that? And will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. So what he's saying is our ability to bear arms is not just for self-defense, it is for defense against tyrannical government, which a tyrannical government is defined as doing things the people do not consent to. And he's saying that if there's ever a government that wants to try to take away our right to bear arms or to take over this nation without the processes put in place, that Hopefully, our ability to bear arms and use them will be a strong moral check. But if not, we are then to resist such tyrants. There is certainly no small danger that indifference may lead to disgust and disgust to contempt and thus gradually undermine all the protection intended by this clause of our uh, uh, National Bill of Rights. When you have Pelosi and other people that say uh, to hell with the Constitution and that it's a you know, a dead document, it doesn't pertain to to today's society. She literally broke the oath which she took to uphold the Constitution. And the fact that these people are allowed to run our government, number one, tells us how much education is needed for the citizens so that we don't put up with this nonsense. But number two, the flagrant disregard for our founding documents in this country, and it needs to be addressed, and these people need to be voted out. And that's why Christians need to get uh, to the, the um, polls. So Joseph's story inserts asserts that, which will be reconfirmed in subsequent sections, that the scope of the Second Amendment allows citizens to defend themselves not only against the aggression of other individuals, but also against that of government. Now, um, Tucker also said later in his legal lectures, the law of self-preservation is indeed familiar familiarly styled the first law of nature. It is recognized sub-modo by the laws of every civilized country. The right of self-defense and with it of self-preservation may without danger of controversy, therefore, be laid down as the first law of nature, nor is it lost by entering into society. Meaning, just because I'm part of society, no matter what state I live in, there's no right for them to take my weapons. Now, if I commit a crime with them, absolutely. But other than that, they have no right. And then a final couple quotes from this handy-dandy Second Amendment book. Um, so another significant legal commentary was uh, John Randolph Tucker. He was the Dean of Law and a constitutional law professor at the uh, and the Attorney General of Virginia. Um, and in 1899, he authored his two-volume commentary on the Constitution, He said, the Second Amendment uh, reads thus, a well-regulated militia being being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This prohibition indicates that the security of liberty, excuse me, the security of liberty, okay, notice that, against the tyrannical tendency of government, is only to be found in the right of the people, to keep and bear arms and resisting the wrongs of government. Now, guys, you gotta get this. The security of liberty is dependent on our ability to bear arms. So, the tyrannical tendency of government, okay, so the founding fathers understood that very well. We've been removed from that and we're not recognizing what's happening. Or we wouldn't vote people in like Fetterman and the New York governor and uh, our own uh, governor here in New Mexico. So the ability to defend liberty against tyrants relies solely on the right to bear arms. Because if the system of voting, et cetera, et cetera, peaceful noncompliance gets overwhelmed by tyrants, that is our duty to bear arms. That's what he's saying. So I'm just commenting on what the commentator is saying. Um... Let's see. The Senate Judiciary Committee noted back in that day, the proposal for the wording of the Second Amendment finally passed the House in its present form, and we've read it over and over. In this form, it was submitted unto the Senate, which passed it the following day. The Senate in the process indicated its intent that the right to be an individual one for private purposes by rejecting an amendment that would have limited the keeping and bearing arms of uh, to bearing for the common defense. The conclusion is that thus inescapable that the history, concept, and wording of the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, as well as its interpretation by every major commentator in court in the first half century after its ratification, indicates that what is protected is an individual right of a private citizen to carry firearms in a peaceful manner. Now, if we ever have to defend ourselves against a tyrannical government, that was also uh, the intent of the Founding Fathers. So, you know, if you don't like weapons, that's fine. It's your choice as American not to carry it, not to carry a weapon. Um, But if you understand and see what is happening, I would recommend very highly that you become skilled at carrying your weapon, crime, increases and all that. So I don't wanna get too deep in that. I have um, someone that gets these downloaded off of uh, Facebook um, really fast because you never know if they're going to try to silence me. And I was just thinking, I need to look and see when my concealed carry renews. Oh, I'm good. (laughs) Always have that with me. Uh, But anyway, so that concludes um, this week's My Thoughts on the Election. And the uh, Second Amendment, we'll continue more Second Amendment next week as I develop the slideshow and the material uh, for the Constitution 101, I will probably do hybrid meetings where they're both um, Zoom and in-person. And I'm now a constitutional coach, so I want to spread the urgent education. That's what God keeps telling me, urgent education. We've got two years to do a lot of work before the next election, and like I said, The fact that this country split 50-50 tells me that the ideologies of wokeism is working, and this country is in danger. I knew it was in danger, but it's more serious than I thought. Number two, Republicans, please quit saying red wave. Please. You're actually discouraging people from voting, okay? Oh, and one more thing. Pray on the Walker race. A lot of people are not happy with him or the other candidate, So a lot of Republicans have already said they're just going to stay home. That's not the answer. Get the Republican in. I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. By you not voting, you're voting for Warnock. So we got to be smart, guys. (laughs) Don't even get me started on that, you know. But anyway, so I will um, see you guys next week unless I have some headlines and stuff I need to get to you. And then I will um, get here sooner. You know what I'm liking? That little plant back there hanging basket. They sent me like shoestrings to hold it up, so I had to get some chains. I'm kinda of digging that up there with my rooster. What do you what do you guys think? I might have to keep it there. Anyway, I will see you guys soon. Small is the new big. God is shifting from the current church structure back to his original intent and design, the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the original word that was used when Jesus was describing that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it in Matthew 16, 18. In fact, most of the time when you see church, it's actually ecclesia. The ecclesia is his ruling government on earth made up of two or more. It's a mobile organic community, not a system. If you felt like a square peg trying to fit in a round hole, or you know there's more, this training might be for you. If you know that God is moving in the marketplace and you want to be equipped to partner with Him, this training is for you. If you understand that the call is to disciple nations, you must be equipped with this training. Go to churchshift.me. That is churchshift.me.